Hello and welcome to RZ Weekly, our weekly podcast on the religious Zionist world, modern orthodoxy, and whatever comes to our mind. I'm here with Rabbi Johnny Solomon. Hello, Rabbi Hi Johnny. There. Hi there. Hi, I'm with Molly Bravsky from yeah. Alon Shavut. And uh, we have two topics today. The first topic, actually, I'm going to turn it over to Molly. Molly, please tell us about our first topic. Okay, so I, I'd like to discuss how we engage in social media. The, the topic came up for me concretely a couple of weeks ago when there was a, um, an issue making the rounds, a story making the rounds about a, uh, I think it was a pizza store in Passaic that was, that was advertising itself. Uh, something like, for the boys, donuts and bagels. I might not be accurate, but I just want to give the general sense. For the girls, salads and, you know, whatever, maybe fruit shake. Now, clearly, I don't think I need to go into why this is um, not a great way to advertise. That, that I think I'll take as a given, but, you know, it's very clearly not sending healthy body messages. Um, I don't think it's the greatest thing. I, I first, when I saw it, I thought it was for children because it said boys and girls. Turns out it might have been for everybody. I don't think that's in the best of, uh, you know, it's the most appropriate way to, to relate to people as boys and girls. Um, when you're talking about actually, Molly, this is totally off topic, but I was very upset that it was assumed that boys are going to eat pizza and not eat anything healthy, but okay. Okay. There you go. So I would say healthy body image cuts both ways, right? In terms of our expectations, we should not be expecting, uh, food to be distributed along gender lines. I think that's again, fairly obvious. Um, there was also a slight question of whether there was what's called the pink tax, which is when you charge women more for the things that you market to them because their package was slightly more expensive than the male package. I, I don't know whether that was objectively true or not, but that was something that was kind of also in the picture. Well, so I don't admit, their saving was more, by the way. I did the calculation. In total, the saving for the girls was a few cents. <laughs> okay, there you go. So there was no pink tax. No pink tax. All okay. right. Um, but the truth is that I didn't really want to discuss that particular issue because I think it's pretty clear to everybody that was, that was a misstep and that it was not, it was sending problematic messages. And it also became very clear that as soon as the um, owner of the store became aware, he very quickly took it down and changed it. What struck me was the, that to me, the discourse around this was a perfect example to me of like, how we talk on social media and what's more effective on social media and what's less effective on social media and the patterns that we fall into um again i'll say on social media the things that disturb me about those patterns i want to i i, I want to present what i think is a, kind of what tends to happen and perhaps hopefully offer a healthier model so i, I think what's what's Okay, so the first thing I want to say is that as I start, you know, as I'm saying from the very beginning, I totally understand the emotional reaction um, and the 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 um, almost visceral response to this ad. Or and and you know, I want to broaden it to a lot of things that we see on most social media. And I think that it's completely appropriate and and even healthy and positive for our community to speak out against trends that we find troubling, disturbing, unhealthy. So I'm not here to say, how dare you complain or why should you criticize? No, I want to kind of empathize and hold that space of like, you know, there are things that I find completely outrageous. And my first response is to be, you know, very passionately 
um, responsive. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be passionate in our responses. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there are certain patterns of response that are not so helpful. So I'd like to frame it in the context of John Gottman, who's the relationship expert. John and Julie Gottman are psychologists who run the, um, what's called the Gottman Institute. It's really for couples, for, for a healthy relationship among couples, but it's transferable to all relationships. Why am I using that model? Because specifically in this case, I felt that part of the problem was that you were talking across communities, right? It was a lot of modern Orthodox people critical of what's going on over there in that more right-wing community. And so I, I think that, that especially what sometimes we're talking to ourselves, like in, within our community, but very often we're not talking to people of like-minded thought. We're talking about, or ostensibly to, but usually about people who think or feel or believe differently than we do. And the trick then becomes, how do I effectively say what I want to say without, um, and do it in an effective way? So, all right, I, I guess I'll talk about what not to do, but I'm really much more interested in what yes to do. And I want to bring an example of somebody who did a very positive thing, also from social media. And that was from an article by, this, by somebody named Blimi Marcus. He was an article in The New Yorker um, who was very disturbed what's going on in terms of vaccines in the ultra-Orthodox community. And it described, and I would advise everybody to read this article, about how she, she herself lives, I think, I don't know if she lives in Lakewood or she went into Lakewood, but she herself identifies as ultra-Orthodox. She went into an, to a different community, or I don't think it was her community, and she, in a very positive way, was actually able to convey her message and effect change. So how did she do it? Okay, so again, if you go back to the Gottman model, Gottman talks about four things not to do when you're engaged in conversation with somebody if you actually want there to be a constructive outcome to the conversation. He calls these the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, yeah, I think it's a great name. Um, first of all, he says, if you start out negatively, he says 98 of conversations that start out negatively end negatively. So if you start out negatively, you might as well just end there and not even have a conversation, which I think is important in terms of even before you get to how you complain, like how you present yourself. And again, if you look at this Blimey Marcus article, she talks about how she went in, she, when she walked into the room, she said, well, we have to sit in a circle. She um, said to them, you know, she started by a joke. She said, if you're an anti-vaxxer, get out now. And they were all like taken aback. And she was like, no, I'm just kidding. I going to really talk to you. So she started from a place that was very open to dialogue. So that's step one. Okay, and now I'm going to try to make this brief. Very briefly, I just want to go through the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, I, and as I'm going through them, I just want us to think about how much we see this on social media. So the first one is criticism instead of complaint. Okay, so a criticism is global, right? All of you guys always, right? You all, you know, you misogynistic you know, frummies, instead of a, a, a specific complaint. I don't let, you know, the, the, the way your ad was worded disturbs me because I think it presents an unhealthy body image. The difference between, oh my God, I cannot believe what I'm seeing, you know, you, that this is so typical of this ridiculous community versus a very specific complaint about what it is that bothers people. Okay, the second horseman is um, contempt. All right, which again, when you're talking about interpersonal communication, that's eye rolling and sneering and snort, snorting. And again, contempt comes across very clearly 
in our, in our Facebook interactions, right? When somebody just says like, oh my gosh, just eye roll. That's all I can say, right? They're basically saying to that, the community, right? I have contempt for you. I don't take you seriously. And I think we see a lot of that on social media. The third is the problem with talking in those ways, criticism and contempt, is that what ends up happening is the person you're talking to immediately becomes defensive, right? And so here I wanna say that like, I saw this happen because I had a friend who has a relative in that community and she asked the, she, she asked the relative what he thought. And he was like, yeah, they're just out to get us. They just, you know, they hate Haredim. It's just Haredim bashing, it's just Yeshivish bashing. He immediately became defensive because he felt like the attack that was coming in was again, couched in this very critical and contemptuous language. And the problem is that after, when you're in an interaction with somebody, and after you've gotten to the stage of criticism, contempt, and defensiveness, the final stage is stonewalling, where you just put up a stone wall and you don't even listen to the other person. And I think that that's a perfect description of what happens in our communication, which is that we're now talking to walls. We're so far apart in terms of our ability to have healthy discourse that we're not even talking to each other. What we're saying is either we're talking to ourselves in our own bubbles, or what we're saying falls on deaf ears. And I wanted to test this out. So I, yeah, I'm gonna wrap it up, last sentence. Um, I, I, I had a conversation with somebody, two people I know actually, who are more yeshivish, and I, I did it in this very respectful way. I said, you know, I was wondering what you thought about this, and I raised the issue. And the response I got was, yeah, no, I really agree with you. And you know, I think body image is a really important you know, issue. And they even went so far as to say, because I was coming from this open, seeking to understand, seeking to respect, they even said, and you know what? I think it's a problem within our own community. I think our community does put too much emphasis on externals as opposed to internals. That came from her. It wasn't me screaming at her, you guys and your shit of resumes and I can't believe you and it's so terrible. Because I came with, with, with the positives of specific complaints couched in respectful language, open to hearing the other side, I got a very different reaction. And I think that we're missing that. So my question to you is, do you think that, that, that there isn't hope? It's just not feasible on social media because it's just such a minefield of you know, um, snark and negativity that it's all, all lost and we should just give up? Or do you think that there actually is an optimistic um, place we can come from where we can, if we engage in healthier discourse, we can create a healthier environment online. Uh, Rob Johnny, you want to take it first or you want me to go? I'll initially respond with just a few, uh, a few pointers and, and I mean, uh, as uh, Mali had mentioned to me beforehand, technology uh, and smartphones in particular is an area which I've, I've studied at considerable length. And, and really what we need to understand is what is discourse in social media? Um, is it a, a unique type of communication or is it just like regular communication on a screen? And from what I understand and what most scholars seem to put together, it's a hybrid kind of language, but it lacks something which is really important, which is social cues. We rely on social cues in order to counterbalance some of the contempt that was suggested because there are certain things that I'm just not going to do and I'm not going to say out loud because I know that you're my neighbor, even though I disagree with you or I don't like quite what you're doing, there's an understanding of what Rabbi Sachs likes to call the dignity of difference. He uses it with respect to people of different faiths, but here we can use it in respect to people of different Jewish communities. 
when you lack, when you have a paucity of social cues, then you have this, what one scholar called it, an uncooked linguistic stew, where, where language is thrown around in, in a whole bunch of different ways and where you bring your prejudices and where you bring your baggage to the table. So just to quote one scholar, most online communication happens against a backdrop of said history, whether it involves two individuals or a group. And in actual fact, um, the way people communicate reshapes the media and, of course, that affects the kind of conversations we have. I think we'd like to think that when we see something online, we give it its due without bringing some kind of uh, attitude or, or, um, or, or prejudice towards a particular person. I think most of us don't, but in particular when there's, a, when there's a, uh, an absence of social cues, it makes it even more tricky. And when somebody appears to be pressing my button, deliberately or otherwise, I take it as an opportunity to emphasize what I believe to be my truth, and I want other people to hear it too. Thank you, Johnny. I come at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Molly, I don't know if you'll be surprised to know that I, I'm, I am very pessimistic about social media, even, uh, even, though, even though I use it, I use it professionally, I use it personally, but uh, I, I like to say it this way. I used to have students in a row that I, I would give seminars and talk to them about, about, uh, about tools. And, and when you look at tools, Every tool is designed for a certain purpose. So I would say, you know, like, let's take a fork. So the person who designed a fork designed a fork in order to, in order to allow a person to efficiently pick up food and eat with it. Let's say you wanted to kill a person with a fork. Could you kill a person with a fork? I'm sure we've seen movies that you could theoretically, but it's not an efficient tool for that purpose because it wasn't designed for that purpose. So with that in mind, you have to ask yourself, so the people who design social media, they're designing this tool. What is the purpose of this tool? How does it work? How is it designed? So anybody with, a, you know, with, 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 with any experience in social media will understand that it, it's designed specifically to evoke a reaction, to prompt you to get a like, to prompt you to get a reaction. You know, we all, you know, now they even talk about it in terms of, in terms of a, a, a chemical reaction that when you open the Facebook, you want to know how many people have reacted to what you've written. And, and you learn intuitively, you start learning what posts will elicit a certain kind of reaction and what kind of reactions will elicit certain kind of reactions. And those of us who try to be like, as you say, you know, considerate and thoughtful and meaningful and, and nuanced, nuance is not a word that means anything in social media. Nu you know, social media is about burns and about being cool and about the cleverness I think the worst of this is, is Twitter. I try to like communicate with Twitter and like Twitter is just a cesspool of, 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 of nasty one-liners and one-upmanship and then a bunch of like, you know, media people who talk to each other. But you can't actually have a conversation in 160 characters about anything meaningful. And even, you know, so the reason I, I like Facebook is I use it to promote the work that I do in the Jewish community. I think that's wonderful. I also really like it because it allows me to interact with, with intelligent people around the world that I, don't, that I don't know personally, but I'm able to share you know, ideas, this podcast. But if, if you would ask me if my ideal world, I would love to create a private social network for people who are interested in having nuanced conversations about things that I'm interested in. But that doesn't exist right now. You should just know that many websites, there are a lot of different private social networks. 
teachers have social networks and you know crafts of social networks and my brother's a company that does like craft social networks and i hope that on those private social networks that people aren't just always trying to one-up each other and and outshine each other and out nasty each other but if we're all going to be on one communal social network without without shared values i don't really you know i don't really think that there's any hope of it not being heightened and uh, you know and uh, and 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 uh, a desire to elicit that like and see how smart I am and how clever I am. You know, I would say the examples that you gave of the core horsemen are wonderful and terrific, but the, the big difference, you know, I, I I looked up that article in the New Yorker that you mentioned. You, there's a really important thing you forgot to mention. She's meeting them in person. Mm -hmm. She's interacting with them in person. There's yeah. no need to have yeah. any like one-upsmanship and criticism. She's talking to them. You just there's no comparison between that and if she would try to have this conversation in social media, I promise you, even with all of those tactics, if she would have asked how many people believe in that you're all idiots, you know, get out, that would have been the end of the conversation on social media. And oh. I'm not yeah. I'm not sure there's another there's a way out of that. It's something that we're all uh, I would say on the one hand addicted to, but and we don't realize to what a degree the the behaviors that we learn in Facebook we then take and appropriate outside of Facebook as well. We're turning everything into the base medrash where it's like, you know, I'm stuffing the other guy and I'm one-upping the other guy. It's, it's a problem. I'm not really sure I have an answer. Well, okay, it, so I, I, uh, John, you wanna go ahead? No, I was just simply gonna say in response to what Ruben's saying, it kind of reminds me, and going back to my remarks about uh, uh, um, uh, social cues, it's as if social media is a midat hadin um, uh, uh, climate whereby we don't give each other latitude, where we don't give each other a chance. Um, and as a result of that, the latitude that you'd give when you can see somebody uh, and uh, see how they respond and you respond to how they respond, and there is this kind of negotiation of understanding. In social media, we are not even seeing the person, we're seeing words, we choose to read it as we wish, and then we pounce on them. But as Chazal tell us, on the world of Midat Tadin, we destroy a world. And, and discourse does get eroded in a very significant and often very, very personal way if this is how we don't seek to give a little bit more uh, rachamim and room and understanding towards the other. Johnny, I would, I would agree. I mean, we're talking about a societal problem. We, look at, we see, you know, uh, political systems where people talk about, uh, not, not to each other, but at each other. And it is spilled into our society. And unless... I mean, we're not here to talk about the societal problems at a whole, but unless society finds a way to solve this problem, it will. It I, I it, it could cause serious, serious, serious issues. Not so, not so long down the road. Right. So that's what I want to kind of pick up on, which is first of all, I share your pessimism. Um, I, 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 I really, and again, I don't know how much we'll get into this in the next topic, but I really, and I would like to hear of Johnny's. Uh, approach to social media because I see it more as dangerous than as positive. Um, I also agree with your point. I happen to be on a few closed Facebook groups and one of them is just a lovely place to be um, because they're very clear about the rules. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody is interested in being healthy and positive and there have actually been contentious issues that have come up and there have been a point where the moderators had to kick people out and I've actually been involved in some pretty heated conversations. but. But it's been manageable because there's goodwill among the group and because it's smaller, as you're saying. Um, the, the last point I want to make is that I had an interesting comment made to me by a student a couple days ago, uh, because this is what I'm talking about in my class with them. 
Um, and she said, her generation is already the generation that's aware of the difficulties of social media, so they're being educated about how to use social media wisely. Our generation, right, let's say the three of us, had a life before social media, so we can have this kind of outside, inside critique. She said the generation in between, you know, the, the, whatever many years there are, were the ones who kind of became addicted, but, but aren't actually being educated about how to use it. She thinks that's the most dangerous. Now that was, first of all, an interesting comment, but second of all, just kind of opens up that still that petah, where again, I'm inclined to agree with you about like, I think it's the end of the world as we know it. I think it's destroying civilizations and it's destroying political discourse and it's destroying our civil society. But I would like to hope that Rajani and some of his research has come across a way like we're not all going to stop using Facebook. Maybe we should. Maybe that should be the solution. We should all, you know, there was a study that just came out that said like, you know, people a month off Facebook are happier. So maybe the solution is get off of social media. But if we're going to say, hey, how can we, can we make it better? Or should we just say, as, as, as Rajani saying, it's just Olam Hadin and it's just mental or is there any, you know, kind of possible out of this the the issue is that you've danced around uh, two um contradictory notions is it making us behave in a particular way or can we make it behave in a particular way Mm -hmm. and and social scientists uh explore this this dynamic between us and technology and some basically are technologically deterministic and insist that it controls us uh, and others take it the exact other way around. And obviously, most normal people, specifically the author whose book I have in front of me, Nancy Bain, she takes that middle ground, whereby there is a, a dance where we shape technology and thereby technology shapes us. We've just described something which is uh, toxic, where we have very, very snappy and judgmental rhetoric and how that can spill over in communities, which is regrettable, but you've also described how in a community something was done differently and perhaps that then tempered the discourse online. I'm, I'm by no means a pessimist. The key question whenever you deal about with uh, social media and technology is, how, what are you doing with it? How do you use it? Um, uh, uh, if, of course, you're a t- technology deterministic individual, then you're saying you're doomed because they're controlling us and there's no, no chance of us having the wherewithal, be able to control our reactions because it's prompting us and constantly that's prodding that's us to that's react. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's, it's forcing me to do something. I'm saying it's preying to our weaknesses. It's, it's, it's designed to elicit that it, within us is not our best self. That's and as we know, people, the, the people who are in charge, you know, like the shmua is that those in Silicon Valley who are developing all of the social media are the ones who are not allowing their children to have social media because they know all of the dirty secrets, uh, you know, of how, as you said, the dopamine shots. I don't think you need dirty secrets. It's not dirty secrets. It's right. It's all out there. It's obvious to anyone who uses it. People who are off social media are happier because all social media is show the great parts of our lives. I just finished a marathon. I had this delicious dinner. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't share that my kid threw up on the floor. We don't share any of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? So of course I'm not going to be happy. How come they're having this awesome time and I'm sitting here like killing myself trying to finish my paper? And I, you know, they, that's what makes people unhappy. I mean, think about all of these things. Why is it good? I, I mean, I, I don't know, but we still are, we're still addicted to it because they're very, very, very good at what they do. I would actually share one thing that I've done. It helps me a little bit. 
that I think people should try to think about. One practical tip, even for someone who is as addicted to social media as I am, I turned off all the notifications on my phone. Mm -hmm. If you notice that the, your phone is designed in such a way to grab your attention at every possible moment, every WhatsApp that comes up, every Facebook post that comes up, every email, there's a way to do it. If you look carefully, there's a way to turn all of that off so that you can decide when to go in as opposed to it drawing your attention to every seven seconds. And I think that I did it. And I think it's not, it's not that difficult to do. And at the very least, then you at least have that much more control over, your, over yourself as opposed to your phone controlling you. That's my two cents. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could or we should just give it up. Like, should we all just become Luddites or should we try to wrestle with it? Or we're just going to, we're just, and by the way, there are some positives to technology. Like people talk about it being like a revolution in terms of its reach and its scope. Um, you know, there, there are definitely positives to the tech, technological revolution. So I don't want to sound like a complete doomsdayer. I'm just really unsure about Clearly, like the, the line is, it's a tool to use well. Johnny, we'll give you the last word. Um, uh, I, I can have the last word. Uh, seems to be <laughs> have a slight technical hitch here. Um, listen, I, I, I strongly believe it's a, a tremendously powerful tool, which can be used to revolutionize the world. Um, I believe that we are given gifts, and those gifts, if harnessed correctly, can bring redemption to people and ideally redemption to the world. Uh, with the power of technology, we can reach uh, the other side of the world in milliseconds, share ideas, share messages, uh, hear from people uh, and gather people together. Things like the Shabbos project just wouldn't be uh, a possibility absent of social media. I mean, I think you guys are being absurdly over-pessimistic. Of course, <laughs> there, you might as well say, you know, knives are terrible because people stab people with them and I'm going to get rid of them. I mean, for goodness sakes, use things effectively and you can make effective change and use things lousily without control. But, we, you know, why don't we speak about alcohol um, or, or, or food? Certainly drugs or, or cars where people unfortunately seem to keep on driving absurdly fast and killing themselves, cell phones themselves, which have been a trigger for numerous casualties. Tuckless is technology is an amazing thing. And it's up to us whether we hear the word beckoning of God saying, use me effectively. Alternatively, we just give up on life and walk away from probably the greatest gift uh, that's been created, which is the ability to bring together millions, if not billions of people to share ideas. Our task now isn't the network. Our task is to have sufficient patience uh, in order to do that effectively. It's a calling. It's a calling of us maturing uh, ethically so that we have enough time for one another now that we have enough reach towards one another. Okay, beautifully said it, Johnny. It's always like uh, good, good to wrap up with you because you leave us with words of inspiration and hope. Uh, uh, um, so I won't comment. I said my piece. Um, I, 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 of course, agree with the potential of the positive, but one also, I believe, has to be a realist about the way it's being used in a practical sense. And we have to be aware of the negative. I'm not, obviously, we're, we're having a podcast. We're using this technology but we haven't figured out a way to harness it. We haven't figured out a way to have self-control. We haven't figured out a way to, like you said, to find, to own the Hagdil Torah, but to control it in such a way where it's not destructive. And we, we, until we, and I think maybe the answer is, we're not giving it enough attention. 
We're not talking about it enough. We're not, you know, we need to speak about the negatives because of course the positives are there. We, we need to find ways that to, to learn to create systems of control because the way it is now, it's not gonna get better unless we do something about it to make it better. That would, that's what I feel. The potential, of course, is for good. But right, right now, in the way that we're using it, I, I, I'm not sure that my life is enriched, even though I use it all the time, by you know, seeing pictures and Facebook. There are many ideas, but I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that I would want my kids. You know, I don't have much of a choice, but I'm not sure in the way that, they, that it's used now that I would think that it's a good thing. Oh, you got a Facebook account. Terrific. Your life is going to be enriched. How do we work towards a point where we see the social media and we teach them to use it in, in such a way, or we have a, a tool that can be that allows them to use it in a positive sense and not just become sucked into the negativity? You know, your your lofty words are absolutely correct, except in the real world where it's not happening. How do we make that happen? Molly, just, you wanna, I, yeah. yeah, just talking about social media and technology and the downsides. I kind of lost. I got kicked off my computer because the the battery was supposed to be plugged in, but apparently wasn't. <laughs> uh, so I missed uh, Johnny's words of wisdom, uh, but now I'm back. Okay. All right. I, Johnny, can we, can we move on to our second topic? I, I suggest that. You, you want to inspire me again before we continue? Uh, I'm, I'm ready to listen. <laughs> okay. All right. And the next topic I want to talk about is a sort of similar topic. It, it, it's something that I've actually thought about quite a bit in the, in the past uh, years uh, because uh, I am uh, very involved in Irgun Rabbinate Sohar, the Sohar Rabbinic Organization, and I also volunteer to marry couples uh, under the auspices of Sohar, which means that secular couples will, will come to my house, will meet with them, and then I'll go do their wedding as long as they're, they're uh, somewhere in the neighborhood. I know Molly's husband, David, also is a, is a Rabbi Chatein in Sohar, and I tried to convince Rabbi Johnny to become a Rabbi Chatein, and sooner or later we'll, we'll get to him. Okay. Um, uh, and every time, so every time a couple comes to my house, I always ask them the same question. So why are you getting married? And, and uh, very often, almost always, they'll look at me and say, hmm, it's a good question. I didn't really think about that. You know, like, and they'll give an answer, they'll, they'll kind of come up with an answer, but the, the, underlying, the underlying point of the question is, like, why, today, why get married today? If you're a secular couple living together in, 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 in today's Western society, why get married at all? So it seems that more and more uh, couples are asking themselves these questions. So Rav Chaim Nabon wrote an article in Makor Rishon. I, I don't know, I, I shared it with you. I don't know if you've seen it. Mm -hmm. And he wrote about the fact that there's two interesting statistics go, go together. The first statistic is that the number of marriages, these, these were official statistics, statistics, that's hard to say, official statistics, okay, were, were put out by the Misrata Deptot, by the Ministry of Religion, about the number of couples, so we're talking about Jewish couples that married in Israel. Okay, in 2014, there were 83,600 couples, and in 2017, 82,600. So the number is going down. I'm sorry, that, that's not, those are the wrong numbers. The numbers are going down. And there's, a, there's like, let me see if I can get the numbers. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I misquoted the wrong thing. In 2016, 37,000 couples married. 2017, 36,000, and 2018, 35,000. You're seeing steady, steady decrease of the number of couples marrying in Israel. Okay? And, and also, it's not connected. So the Messiah of the Torah claims it's not connected to the fact that people don't like marrying in the rabbinate. 
because you see a similar decrease in the number of people marrying outside of the rabbinate. Meaning whether they marry inside or outside and they're, they're getting civilly married, so the number is steadily going down. So you'll say, okay, well, maybe more and more couples are just living together. Maybe they're just, you know, living out of wedlock. So that's the numbers I was quoting before. They also have statistics for that. In 2014, 83,600 couples were listed as living together. And in 2017, three years later, 82,000 couples are living together. Meaning the numbers are a little bit less. They're not going up commensurate to the amount of couples that are getting married. So he, had, he, he called it, it's interesting, he called it like the Netflix effect. He said what people are doing is they're not, they're, they're choosing not to uh, enter into long-term serious relationships. But instead, he said, the way, like, the way we like to watch, you used to, you know, you wanted to watch a show, so if you wanted to watch, you know, Happy Days, you had to watch Happy Days one week and wait for the next installation the next week, and you were like, you know, invested. But nowadays, if you want to watch a show, so you wait until Netflix puts out the show, and then you just binge watch, and then you move on to your next show. That's what he said. He called it the, the Netflix effect. When we're seeing a steady increase in people, and this is not really prevalent. I don't know how prevalent this is in the, in, the, in, the, in the religious world. I really have no idea. But we're seeing a steady increase in single people choosing to live alone and choosing to, you know, to, to enjoy a relationship with this person and then enjoy a relationship with that person, enjoy a relationship with that person. And I see it, you know, in, in Israel, Israel is always like 10, 15 years behind um, Western society in general. But the reason I see this is because, you know, as a, as a consumer of Western media for, to whatever level, I've always, well, not always, I have, I'm sorry, Molly, I shouldn't say always, I'm, I'm learning from you, okay? I have of late, uh, meaning the last number of years, sensed uh, an ongoing attack on classical institutions like marriage, you know, that, it, that of, 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 uh, of, of long-term relationships in that way, of the sanctity of marriage, and you see this bearing out, you know, like just uh, marriage statistics in America have gone way, way down. The Western countries are way, way down. And you see this sort of creeping into Israeli society and it's a worrisome trend. I'm not sure, I, you know, it's, what's interesting to me is that I see the religious world, especially the religious Zionist world as having a sort of, like they call it the anchor of Israeli society in a sense of having a certain sense of instilling values within the broader society, values of love of Israel, values, Jewish values. And so from my perspective, before things become, I, don't, I wouldn't say too late, but before the statistics get worse, I think it's high time that we start talking as a community about the, the religious value and the social value and the importance of long-term relationships and especially the importance of marriage. I'm, worried about, I'm wondering if you've thought about this idea and uh, what your reaction to this ongoing trend is. Johnny, why don't you go first? Um, okay, so let's make two points. Number one, uh, relating back to what Mali was saying, uh, Jean Twenge in her book, uh, iGen, makes it very clear that there is a steady decrease in stable relationships and sexual activity amongst teenagers who are far more involved in technology. Meaning she believes, and studies support this, that technology means that people really haven't got time or aren't particularly interested in investing in face-to-face long-term relationships, but instead it's a relationship of swiping, not just of Netflix, but you know, of all these different uh, apps and try and meet up with somebody and hook up with somebody. And so how we're living uh, and this greater compartmentalization 
and how we can be immersed in our own, own different worlds, notwithstanding the fact that we're living just a few uh, meters from a neighbor who we barely say hello to, is corroding the type of bonds necessary to forge meaningful relationships. So technology uh, can be, I'm not saying it is, remember I'm the optimist here, but technology uh, can be a factor in explaining how we look at uh, emotional dynamics and relationship dynamics. Uh, but uh, the second is, uh, as you suggest, in this kind of uh, postmodern, truthless age where we wish to um, remove ourselves from institutional uh, commitment, well, marriage of all sorts is institution. Um, and we live in a fairly uh, throwaway culture, and we're interested in taking often more than giving, in receiving rather than necessarily loyalty. Um, obviously, this is having a very stark effect on the fabric of the Jewish people. I read the piece by Chaim Navon, and uh, it's not something which was a surprise. Nevertheless, when somebody puts all this thing together, you ask yourself, are we losing sight of the most important thing? Now, as you may know, I'm a strong fan of uh, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and he's been talking about this for the last 20 years. He's been talking about the corrosion of the family in Western society and how there is a triangle of interrelationships between family, faith, and community. When one fails, the others fail, um, and each is a trigger for each other. Uh, we've seen a dilution of faith and a dilution of community, and it's led to a dilution of family or vice versa. So I think the this data that Chaim Navon has brought is important. We need to look even beyond, not merely who is hooking up and who is meeting up and who is marrying up and who is having kids, but instead, what is this doing to our society, which puts family or allegedly puts family so much at its epicenter, and how is this affecting what the Israel of tomorrow will be? Okay, Mali, I want to turn to you and ask you to respond, but I also would like you to focus you have a, a greater uh, connection to younger people. You teach them as they're in seminary. Um, it, it, would be, it would be easy for me to say that, well, we live in a religious world and we're insulated from these values, but I think it'd probably be also foolish to say. So, so can, you, can you talk about to what degree do you sense that this, this, these, this value system or this, you know, this, these, these choices that, that are being made in Western society have crept into our, our modern Orthodox religious Zionist world as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I like how you formulated that because it gives me a good way to, to kind of approach the issue. First of all, I think of Johnny hit the main points that I wanted to make. Maybe I'll revisit and just give a few of my own, you know, just a little bit of a few additions. But to answer your question, I would say that there is no question that um, the second point that Rojani made about larger, the point that you were making, you know, Netflix generation, as, as you know, it was described in the article, is influencing. There's no, it's absolutely true. I get questions about things I never got in the past, and it's just given. Polyamory. Um, what about polyamory? That's a legitimate option. I'll get from my students, and again, I want to say that my students are generally coming from backgrounds that are not. They're coming from pretty um strong religious communities and schools so it, it's it, it's if it's coming there it's everywhere um certainly issues of gender fluidity um you know are taken there, there are certain things that are just taken as as a given 
Um, and again, there, there's what to discuss. I'm not, you know, these are very complex issues. I mean, I don't think polyamory is a complex issue. Um, but there's no question that, that, that there's an effect of what I would call, um, you know, the, you know, postmodernism, it's so easy to bash postmodernism, but like, we are living in, however you want to describe it, the post, the world that was built on certain Judeo-Christian Western civilization, give it enlightenment values. We are now in a world in which those are no longer given. And that definitely, definitely has a lot of implications for our students, not just in the beliefs that they're coming with, but in their assumptions about why they should believe and who they should believe, right? And what authority, should they take authority seriously? So like, there's no question that that's there. At the same time, my students are also thirsting for, like I teach, I happen to teach a class to Shana Bet, to the second year students, called Chayim Mishpacha, um, which is sort of a combination of halacha. The thought when they introduced the class into the school was when, you know, if and when these girls get married, I'm saying that carefully because, you know, then there's the person, not every single girl gets married and that's, Part of reality, but okay. Um, presuming that, in that, itself, that whole that in and of itself is an interesting comment. Correct. I ha, you know I want to be sensitive and careful to our view to our listeners, and you know there's a lot of complexity here, right? We're, okay. So if this presuming that this young woman is going to get married and she takes a kala class, her mind is in a thousand other places, and she's not going to be focused on you know that particular kala class. So give her an opportunity to learn our sources about you know, married life in depth, but the way that I personally teach the class, because I have more of an interest in mental health, is that I do one class on halacha and then one class on hashkafa. So I'll do you know, a halachic issue and then I'll do healthy communication and I'll do marriage and I'll do parenting and I'll do social media and I'll do boundaries and all types of issues. And this, for all that I have this, other, with this awareness that with time I'm getting more and more of the, the world creeping in, I also, the girls are hungry and thirsty to hear a message that provides them with, um, with something that's good, that they feel is going to create meaning in their life um, and that's going to foster connection. And I think that, th that, that that's the piece that, that, that enables the optimism, which is that at the end of the day, human beings are hardwired for meaning and for connection. And the world that we're living in, between the two, the two challenges, let's say, of social media, which I think um, lowers our level of connection, um, lowers our level of, of even, it's all numbing, right? That's what you do on social media. You numb, right? You go on there and you're numbed out. The problem is if you numb negative feelings, you're also numbing positive feelings. You're basically numbing emotion. Um, there's a fascinating article that somebody wrote about, he asked his students to be off social media and to communicate with each other, and they were terrified. They were terrified to, as you said before, all they were used to communicating is the happy points of their lives. They didn't know how to interact in terms of saying things that were, that were more sensitive, more vulnerable, more critical, exposing difficulties in their lives because they weren't used to doing it. You know, where Johnny talked about face-to-face -face communication. They, they, were, they, they were like little rabbits. I mean, again, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but this is who he described it. Like rabbits caught in this cage. You're like, now you're going to ask me to interact with other humans? I don't know how to do that. And there, are, there really are studies about how the ability to interact healthily is decreasing because, because this unhealthy 
you know, pattern has been put into place. But again, the good news is that, that people want meaning, they want purpose, and they want connection, right? There's, I think, a beautiful statement that talks about addictions, and it says, um, I don't remember exactly the quote, but like, the cure, the antidote for addiction is connection, right? Meaning, because people, again, people addict because they're feeling isolated and numb and nothing, and it's connection that heals what's really ailing them in many cases. So I feel like the way the solution is, you know, we can, we can talk and bash the problems or we can feed the healthy um, material that we do believe is healthy, right? We can, we can, and that's what I feel. My students are thirsting for it. It's like, it, it, I almost find it cute to see them like, you know, I'm talking about marriage and I'm reading an article by Rosalovichik from, who knows when? And they're like, right, they're taking notes diligently. Like, respect is important. Commitment is important. You know, mutual, um, you know, pleasure in the relationship is important. And they're like, they're, and I'm like, guys, we're just talking about like how to have good relationships. And they're, they're eating it up. And I don't think it's coincidental. And I think that that's really where the pathway to, to, um, to a more positive future is. Because they're asking Again, I don't mean this in a condescending way. We, we as a culture, are, and this is, I think, also where, where like, you know, Rabbi Sachs is correct. The culture is thirsting for it. So if we fill that gap in a healthy way, I think maybe that's the best answer to the question we started with, which is like, what do we do? So the answer is, you know, turn on more lights instead of bemoaning, you know, oh my gosh, we're all going down with this terrible tide of, you know, destruction. Rabbi Johnny. You know, it reminds me of this, uh, renaissance of 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 cooking you know because you use the word feed and and i tapping it to you know 50 years ago uh, the best meal you could have is a, a home-cooked meal with all the best nutrients cooked with love and then of course we went into the fast food era where you get things off the shelf this kind of casual living with with just uh, eat as you run and then over the last i suppose 15 20 years uh, cooks have basically tried to reignite our passion for the tender tastes of fish and, and vegetables without all the extra MSG uh, and without all the extra. However, the fact is the following. Each of us, I, I, I can speak personally, we will try and invest as much as we can with a home-cooked meal, but nonetheless, when we're running around, we will try and grab something. You know, we live in a time where convenience does matter. Everything we do is about trying to do things relatively quickly. We're a relatively impatient age. We've got a lot of work to do. We've got very little patience. Uh, so for effective relationships, and it's especially when you've got seminary girls, and as you know, I also teach in seminaries, and, and this is where students have the time to slow down their pace of life and actually let their blessings catch up and say, wow, I realized that I was letting the most important values pass me by. But for most people post age 18, 19, they're running. You know, the rat race of success, uh, of trying to do well in college, of getting a great job means that although sentiments may have been very, very beautifully expressed in a seminary in Israel, you know, how many are holding on to that five years down the line? And the answer is some are and many aren't. And I know because I try and keep track of, of where my students are at. So we need to try and help them create those safe spaces where they can reconnect with the, the core ingredients of what makes life great. I think that's a great point. I just want to add to that. Um, I think another thing we have to 
teach them when we have them. And again, I, I think young people, I think there is a movement among young people also in colleges. They are thirsting for this meaning. I don't think it's just happening in the seminaries. But even let's say that when we have them, or this, I don't mean that enough, when we have the opportunity to be interacting with them and teaching them, there was one year where they put on the sweatshirt, you know, as like the sisma, marriage is hard, because I kept saying it over and over, marriage is hard, marriage is hard, marriage is hard. That, you know, there was another teacher who was like horrified that that was the message. And she's like, can you change it to marriage is challenging? Because like that's so negative. But the reason I kept hitting that note was exactly what you're saying, which is I wanted at some point to them to internalize the idea that maybe it will be worthwhile to, at this point in your life, and by the way, they talk about points of entry in terms of, 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 psycho, of psychological development, where you can make changes that are going to really affect the trajectory of your life. And one of them really is, you know, 18 to 26, let's even say. If they can, at that point in their life, commit, decide that they're going to commit to, to going against the larger grain and to recognize that healthy relationships, whether that's marriage, whether that's friendships, whether that's parenting, whatever it is, first of all, there are studies that find that, that the majority of our happiness in life, also our physical health, our mental and emotional health, our degree of dementia, everything is the highest indicator of success in life across all metrics is relationship. Um, if they can be convinced of that, that can be incentive for them to invest, um, first of all, when they still have the koach to, to start, but to put them on a trajectory of investing. And I'm, I agree with you, they're going to be pulled and there's, and we all, we all have those, you know, including us find, you know, how often do we find ourselves needing, to, you know, instead of choosing, I don't know, I'll speak for myself, not for two of you, but, you know, reading an article on Facebook about how I should be interacting with my child instead of actually interacting. With <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not dismissing what you're saying. I agree with you 100%, but I, I would say at the same time, if we, can, if, we can, if we can educate towards the value of, um, you know, fighting against this stream and educating towards, put in the, put in the work, because I promise you it's going to be worth it, the returns are going to be worth it, and they start seeing that the returns are worth it, maybe that's, again, maybe I'm optimistic, but maybe we really can help people, you know, continue that not just in their early years, but continue that, you know, start a pattern that they're going to continue throughout the rest of their, you know, continue throughout the rest of their life. Okay, I think we're going to leave it here. Uh, there's obviously, like, in every conversation we have, there's so much more to say about both of these topics. Uh, there's been some lively discussion on our Facebook page. Uh, you just search for RZ Weekly. Sooner or later, it'll show up. We're starting to show up on Google, which is really nice. I want to thank uh, Molly Brabski. I want to thank Rabbi Johnny Solomon. I also want to uh, note that our music, that we our intro and out music, is by Victoria Walter. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope to see you all. Next time.